Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 2024, The Class of Activism. This week, I talked to my friend and up-and-coming activist, Maddie Valaket, about the myths associated with the racial justice protests and the Black Lives Matter movement, and the changes that need to be made to make our system work for everyone. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of 2024, The Class of Activism. I am Joseph, and I am joined by my friend, Maddie Valaket. Hi. And today we are going to talk about all of the racial justice protests that have happened in the past year, dispelling a lot of the myths that are associated with them that have been perpetuated by a lot of the conservative right-wing media. So Maddie is a student at the Arizona School of Beauty and is an up-and-coming political activist. She currently works as a phone banker for the Maricopa County Democratic Party. She has done work with March for Our Lives Arizona and Democratic candidates such as Paul Penzone, Aaron Connor, and Dan Toporek. All right, Maddie, thank you so much for uh, coming on to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So my first question is, what has your experience been like with the protests that you've helped to organize and pr promote and everything? Well, for the most part, really positive. It's really created such a sense of community within um, my own like district and outside of my district. These people are just really, really good people. And these organizers are really there to help black people. You know, that's our goal. That's our message. Obviously, our message is not reform because we believe that the system is past a place of reform. We cannot fix and reform 400 years of racism. It's something that politicians cannot do. So mm -hmm. we need to change the whole system. And that's basically our message. You know, um, even with that message, we still urge people to, you know, be active in politics. We are telling people they need to vote. We are telling people that they need to register other people. I think a lot of people think because our whole message is an abolishment that we are deciding to exclude ourselves from these systems that we're in. That's not the case. We understand that these systems are there and we have to work with them, but we also understand that they need to be changed. And we know that's not going to happen overnight. So until that happens, we're still going to work with it in a way that's going to help benefit people that it has not. So for the most part, it's been a really, really positive experience. I've really found a sense of community. I would say the only negative is the way the police have responded. Mm -hmm. So uh, really quick, what does abolishment look like in this case? Like, does it look like the anarchist myth that, uh, an ethos that the, that racists have created? Mm -hmm. It does not look like that at all. Abolishment isn't, let's go burn every single precinct. That's not what abolishment looks like to us. Abolishment to me and to the people I protest with looks like firing cops who kill black people and putting them in jail and making sure that they suffer the consequences. Abolishment is electing people that are going to actually change the system. Mm -hmm. um, abolishment is changing the laws, you know. Abolishment is making sure that um, body cams are mandatory and it's making sure that justice is actually given in these situations. I think a lot of the times people think, oh, well, you can't change it. You can. They just don't want to. And that's mm -hmm. the issue. 
So what's the what's really the difference between abolishment and reform? So reform is, to me, it's taking what's already there and like tweaking it a bit, you know, and adding something new, but still keeping what's in place. And we can't add to what's already there. So instead of, so if we're going to reform something, it's saying taking a law, let's add an amendment to it. Um, we're still going to keep what's there, but we're just going to add something else. In this case, we can't do that. There's no room to keep anything left of the system that is oppressive. So it's completely renewing it. It's taking out the old and coming up with a whole new solution. And I think that's scary for a lot of people because change is scary. Mm -hmm. um, and especially when it's a system that's been there for so long, people don't like that idea. But I think we're at a point in our country where we really, if we want to give black people justice, we have to. Right. So what you're really saying is that reform, it's basically just making like a couple tweaks, adding some stuff in, but not really like making mm. a lasting difference. You're not actually right. repealing anything that actually right. hurts black people. Mm -hmm. But abolishment, it's actually changing laws and mm. making it so that the system does not completely exploit, harm, denigrate, Absolutely. kill black people. Exactly. So it's not really the literal definition of abolishment, which is just get rid of everything. Exactly. We understand that there still needs to be some sense of law and order. Right. And that's when it comes to the idea of community policing, you know, um, neighbors and neighborhoods taking each other accountable, not just, you know, just this one precinct in a district and they're supposed to fix every single issue you know you can't mm -hmm. really expect that of a police department right police aren't superhumans they can't fix every single issue on earth you know that's why they've admitted to... as such right we want to defund the police to put more money into spaces that don't have the means to help so that's like social work that's education you know Exactly. And I mean, defund the police, it's not actually as radical as it sounds. Defund as a word, it's just meant to really catch the attention of people. Exactly. But it's really because just... they've, been, they've been defunding education for years. Exactly. <laughs> like, they've been defunding, privatizing various social services that would actually help if they were appropriately funded. Exactly. And uh, actually, like, not made, being tried to be made into a private industry... Mm -hmm. Like how a lot of conservatives, a lot of conservative economists want America to be like really exactly. kind of privatized, a lot of it, and the government only acting as a last resort, mm. which just is a really bad way of going about things because the nature of privatization, it's that you're dealing with a lot of people at the top who will be taking advantage of the system and using yeah. it to exploit people. Exactly. And so defund the police, it's just trying to put money back into the social exactly. programs. And if these social programs had more money, the police wouldn't need to do half the things that they do. You know, mm -hmm. we, there's no reason cops should be sent to a house where someone is having a mental issue. They don't have training in that. I mean, why do we expect a cop to know how to handle someone with mental illness who's going through an episode? Right. If we had more money in social programs, they would handle that. And I think that's such a great example because we see all these deaths of cops coming to a house of 
someone experiencing a mental episode and they murder them because they don't know how to deal with the situation. Why as a society do we expect them to know how to solve that issue? Exactly. Okay, so my next question is, we've probably already answered this, but I just want it to be perfectly clear. Mm. Is the Black Lives Matter movement anti-law enforcement of any kind? No. And that hereby concludes our episode. <laughs> <laughs> nope, we still we still have to uh, we still have to dispel more of these myths. Yes. So let's talk about um, some of the violence that we that has been seen in these protests. Sure. Who mostly causes the violence of protests? Is it the police? Is it extremists of, on both sides? Is it or is it people who would riot even if it was a celebration after the Super Bowl? A little bit of both. I would say from my experience. Everything has been peaceful until the cops show up. Um, they use excessive force when there is no need to. I mean, we stand in front of Phoenix PD with no weapons. We stand there with our signs and our voices and they show up in riot gear. Why? Why do you need to be armed for that type of situation? They come out with those shields and those tear gas and the rubber bullets and you cannot expect people not to react violently to that type mm -hmm. of violence when it's so unnecessary. It's not needed. Um, I think what people need to understand is protesting is a first amendment, right? You have the right to protest the government. So why is that right being repressed with violence? Exactly. Um, there's no reason for it. I feel if protesters make the first move of violence, obviously there needs to be some sort of de-escalation and, police don't know how to do that properly, so they just add more violence. Um, in other cases, I know in the beginning of these riots, um, we saw people just there to start, you know, live out the like Joker fantasy and wanted to burn a building because you know what? We've been in quarantine for six months and this is the most exciting thing that's happened for people. Um, Let's go raid a target. Exactly, we've seen undercover cops starting the violence and then blaming it on the protesters. We've also seen the right wings and white supremacists come and with a motive to murder people. Um, we saw that in Kenosha. So it's a mix of all of that, but mostly in my experience in Phoenix, there has been no violence until the cops show up and they always make the first move. <laughs> yeah, I recently saw this uh, thing like a couple weeks ago where uh, cops are now developing, like in some areas, taser shields. Exactly. And there's no reason for that. You should not need that type of force. For you know people... what you could spend with the money that you used on taser exactly. shields? You know, teachers are not able to afford pencils. Exactly. And, you know, that's it's almost just like proving the point that we're trying to mm -hmm. make, you know? So in some instances, it's helpful, but... Violence is not something that people want to entertain. It's not something that people wish. Right. Because the whole essence of this movement is for there to be less violence, for there to be less death. So I think if people think that we can still carry that message and do the opposite, it's mm -hmm. hypocritical. It and is. that's not our goal. Precisely. And I mean, with with your point about the police starting a lot of the violence, I, I, I want to talk about the whole entire mm -hmm. system of policing and how it has been mm -hmm. used to suppress civil rights. Exactly. Movement. I mean, for years and years and years, you have the civil rights movement of 19 of the 1960s, mm -hmm. 
that was massively uh, met with a lot of violence by the police. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people point to Martin Luther King and him and like weaponizing, like a lot of conservatives like weaponize what he says. Yes. And in kind of a uh, can't we all just get along sense? Exactly. And then it's like uh, he was killed. <laughs> Even after the civil rights movement ended, the government in all, like all the government was just really conspiring to suppress more of these civil rights movements. That's why we got the war on crime, the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. It's why we even got gun control in California signed by Ronald Reagan. Exactly. Because I just think for me, it's just so hypocritical because it's like, why would you give us the right to protest the government? If you're saying that's illegal, right? You know, and they're changing the narrative all the time. So um, it started with "you can't walk in the street; that's a crime." Okay, no, it's not. Um, Martin Luther King like, blocked intersections. Exactly, and so then we're gonna walk on the sidewalk, and now all of a sudden, walking on the sidewalk is a crime. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Okay, we we won't walk on the sidewalk anymore. We'll, we'll stand in the park. This is a crime. They change the goalpost every time so the whole the whole act of protesting now looks illegal and it's not it's in the constitution so yeah well really i think for me that's like the biggest Mm -hmm. issue is that you're taking away rights to the people so where's the line you know and it's it's really scary have you seen Um, what uh, the governor of florida has proposed as a law i have not oh this is a doozy so what he's proposing is that if there's a protest that results in property damage or blocking roads, anyone who is in that protest is going to be convicted of a felony. Of course. Yeah. Like, this is just one of the most blatant mm. examples of trying to completely suppress protests. This is... Exactly. This is... This law under, unto itself, it's, it, it is unconstitutional on its face. Exactly. And it's so obvious, and it's just like... If you're worried about violence, where was, where was the tear gas and the rubber bullets when white supremacists decided to right. protest the mosque with guns and, and AR-15s? Exactly. And with, with this law in particular, if it goes into effect, say if you have 3,000 people protesting somewhere, exactly. and then you have uh, one person out of that 3,000 uh, cause property damage... That entire 3,000, it's exactly. going to be charged with a third-degree felony. It's wrong. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, it is it it is very, very wrong and very, very scary. It's terrifying. I think this whole situation that we're in and the climate that we find ourselves in is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yep, very. All right, yeah. let's move on. Sure. Okay, so what is the main difference between we've also already answered this but what is the main difference between protesters and rioters uh protesters um don't come don't arrive to an event with the motive Mm -hmm. of destruction and property damage um yes civil disobedience that is a form of protest Mm -hmm. um that is but that can look like standing on the sidewalk when you're told not to stand on the sidewalk who are you harming no one. You're not putting people at risk. Rioters are there to, the goal is to cause property damage, is to cause violence, is to get attention, you know? And the, the drive there in a riot is not 
to carry the message. It's to destroy and destruct. Um, and we have seen riots. I'm not going to sit here and say that every single Black Lives Matter protest has been peaceful. I would be just lying ninety-three percent of them, right? But not not every single protest is a riot, and they're treating it as such. Right. So I want to talk about Dion Johnson. He's his case is relatively unknown, but mm-hmm. it's very sad. Yeah. So, um. So basically, a lot of people don't know about Dion Johnson. Dion Johnson was shot and killed by Phoenix PD on the same day that George Floyd died. Um, he was in his car and he was driving and felt that he would be a danger to the people on the road if he carried on driving. So he pulled off the side of the road like a good citizen would. And he decided he was going to pull over, you know, gather himself, take a nap um, before he would carry on driving. And so he was asleep in his car and George Cervantes was the cop who murdered him. And he, Dion Johnson had a gun in his car, which in Arizona is not illegal. We have open carry laws. Um, So he saw the cop, George Cervantes, saw the gun in the car and felt that Dion was a threat, even though Dion was asleep and aggressively, you know, knocked on the window with his gun and told him you know a bunch of orders um there is not a lot of information on exactly what happened in the incident because of the lack of body cams and the lies in the police report um what dion's mm-hmm. mother was told by police department versus what was put in the police report also two very different stories and there is to the best of my knowledge in the police report there is a mention of George Cervantes kicking Dion Johnson to the ground. So, and that's what his mother has shared with the public multiple, multiple times. It's on record. Um, and she also shared with us that George Cervantes was using very violent language with Dion Johnson. And um, essentially, George Cervantes felt that Dion was still a threat and um, shot him multiple times. And Dion bled out in on the sidewalk and a medical assistance was called, but George Cervantes ordered them to wait. So there was time to save Dion's life and George Cervantes felt like that wasn't necessary. Um, and Dion Johnson died that day in February. Hmm. It, it's just, that's, it's just a really sad mm. thing. I mean, like I've researched a bit into this and I've seen like what the police have said that uh, mm. a lot of probably uh, falsehoods that they've uh, said that yeah. uh, Johnson reached for the officer's weapon. We don't we we don't know that at all. No, that's just it's not, according, in, it's not in the police report either. Not yeah, It's not in the police report. And there's just a lot of things that we just don't know about this that the police have really this is like a systemic thing that they manufacture and create a lot of details yeah and i mean either way there's no reason why someone being asleep on the side of the road should result in their death i mean de-escalation is a thing the cops are supposedly trained in de-escalation there Mm -hmm. i'm certain a kindergarten teacher could have de-escalated that situation better than um, how George Cervantes did. It's just, I don't see 
how finding a black man sleeping in his car can result in his death it it doesn't make sense to me we can't just train people to become police officers and train them to basically be as aggressive as possible to teach them Mm. to not react to stuff but to Mm. try and foresee what like everything that's going to happen and pretty much foresee the worst possible scenario and every time that they do that their most basic instinct is to always reach for their gun yeah that's not de-escalation it's just not and i think a lot of the times people forget the jobs of the police. They are to protect and serve. Right. That doesn't happen with black people. Right. And you can't train people to be desensitized from killing and expect them Mm. to be good at de-escalation. Exactly. Exactly. So Dion's case has been a really, um, it was a big turning point for the Black Lives Matter movement in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. I think it hit a lot of people close to home, especially because Dion's mother has been so adamant about attending marches and talking to the public. And Mm -hmm. I've had the privilege of speaking to her a few times. And she really is just such a strong woman from what she's been put through, you know, losing your son in any circumstance is terrible and it's going to rock a mother no matter what the circumstances are. But, you know, when you lose your son in such a violent way, I think it's, it's so much worse for the mother, but the fact that she's still, you know, she's, Mm -hmm. adamant to meet the people who are fighting for her son she wants to be there with us she wants to keep telling his story and it's painful to keep reliving those moments you know it's really painful but she continues to do so it's really unfair that we have a system where she keeps having to relive the grief relive the pain Mm. over and over again yeah and i just think Already, she was in so much pain. The community was in so much pain. And then Alistair Adele decided that none of the cops should be um, mm-hmm. convicted or fired. And it's just, I, we see it over and over and over again. And the fact that, you know, Dion's story has been so connected to such national um, cases, that, like George Floyd, you know, they died on the same day. And then we got Dion Johnson's verdict the day before we got Breonna Taylor's verdict. Mm. So I think that it just, it's been really hard for um, the city of Phoenix. I know that week where we got the verdict, you know, we'd all been a part of this movement and we've met the family and we'd been so involved. And then, you know, to get that verdict, it, it rocks you. And then the next day to wake up and it's, oh, no justice for Breonna Taylor. That week was really hard mm-hmm. for activists and many people across the world, but especially for the city of Phoenix. Right. Yeah, just pretty much that in, that entire week. It was just devastating. It yeah. really just illustrated that there was just a complete miscarriage of justice, not mm-hmm. just for Breonna, but for Dion. It really proves that across the board that there is a huge problem. Yeah. And it's not a new problem. It's a problem that we've been dealing with that we thought had ended, but it's still going on. Yeah. So I really, really want to shift the conversation towards changes that really need to be made. Sure. So what are the changes that the Black Lives Matter movement uh, seeks in policing and racial justice? 
So I think the biggest thing for us is that when these incidents do happen, of course, we want them to stop happening. But the America that we live in, we don't see that as a reality anytime soon. So when they do happen, that those accountability, that there is, you know, the cops are fired, the cops are convicted, the cops are put in jail, you know, some type of justice for the system that they created in order for these things to happen in the first place. So I think for me, and I know for a lot of other activists, that's the most important thing, is that if you are unwilling to dismantle the system that allows this to happen, and you want to still be complicit in that system, at least make sure that there's justice held in the situation that this happens in, Mm -hmm. you know? So just some sort of justice, when there is injustice, I think is the biggest thing. But essentially, we want to go beyond that. We want to, you know, abolish the system, make sure that there isn't a system that allows this to happen anymore, because then you're saving lives. And that's important. We want Black women and men and children to live exactly and i mean i just want to really emphasize again that when we when a lot of people say abolish defund or anything it's not Mm. we're not going to completely go into anarchy no we're we're just trying to change the system so that people aren't killed yeah completely rip apart what it is now. And when I say rip apart, I don't mean like physically go and burn down every precinct. I mean, you elect a whole new board that is in charge of it. You rehire a whole bunch of new officers. You change how you are able to become an officer. I mean, the fact that you go to school longer for doing cosmetology than to become a cop, there's more hours in hair and makeup and skin than it is to become a cop. You know, you got to change all of that. So it's abolishing all of the little things that get you to this place. You know, it's more training. It's more racial justice training within the police system. You know, it's teaching cops about um, microaggressions and racial profiling. Mm -hmm. It's all of that. And I mean, we could really emphasize that abolish the system. It doesn't mean abolish the good parts. There are parts of the American justice system that actually do work well. It's just that they are hampered by the really, really bad policies. Mm-hmm. They work well for white people. Right. <laughs> we and need I, them to work well for all people. Right. I, and I made this point in uh, I made this point in the last episode where if we take a lot of the systems that white people have benefited from and expanded them out to the entire population, it you can produce a lot of better results. You can save exactly. lives. Yeah. And we just want to protect each other, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's also it's we understand that we need some sort of policing system. I mean, we wouldn't function as a society without it. But the police system that we have isn't protecting people. It's killing people. Right. So we need to abolish it and we need to come up with something new. Right. And I mean, with our with our policing system, we can't trust a system really that's been built up from slave patrols and racist neighborhood watches you can't expect that system to be just exactly it was never designed to protect black people in the first place and really this is what the entire black lives matter movement is working for it's to make sure that systems protect save and benefit black people exactly and i mean all people. I mean, at most of the right. protests that we've been to, we also mention how 
police brutality affects the Latinx community, mm-hmm. especially in Armenian Phoenix. Um, you know, we have a huge Latinx community. Um, black people are, I mean, I think we're just under 10% of the population in Phoenix. So it would, it doesn't make sense to only focus on black people in Phoenix. You have to mm-hmm. look at the big picture, you know, um, Latinx community are so affected by policing. Mm-hmm. So I think when people hear the phrase like black lives matter, they think it's a way of wanting to put black people above anyone else. It's not that. And the movement is inclusive. I think mm-hmm. people think it's this, you have to fit like this tiny box of, Oh, you have to be black to be included. No, like they're fighting for gay rights too. You know, it's also gay black people. It's also um, right. the you know, thing- trans black people. The thing about civil rights movements in general, like when they're predominantly led by black people, it's not just for the rights of black people, it's for civil rights, for the rights Mm -hmm. of all people. Exactly. I think if you look at the LGBTQ civil rights movement, it was obviously Marsha P. Johnson was a black trans woman, but her goal wasn't to get, you know, equality for just black queer people. Um, and so this isn't mm-hmm. just about, obviously, in all the examples that we see, it's constantly black people are the victims of these hate crimes. So that's going to be our focus. You know, mm-hmm. that's obviously it's going to be Black Lives Matter, but it's also to expand justice to other communities. And I think people don't see that mm-hmm. because, I mean, I guess the name of the movement, it, it's not very much showing you all of that, but it's there. I've seen it. Let's talk about firing police officers. Right now, we have a system where police unions are so strong and so well-funded that they are able to stop police departments from firing anyone. Mm. So what can be done to make it easier for police departments to fire bad cops? I mean, if we look at it, I know even before we go into like solutions, it should not be hard. The firing process of anyone should not be hard. It's not hard in any other space. I mean, obviously it's an an uncomfortable conversation. It's not something people are willing to do, but you shouldn't have to jump through loopholes to let go a bad employee, to let Mm -hmm. go someone who is not doing their job. So we need to change how that looks in police departments. It should not be such a hard thing. And, you know, I don't have all the answers on how mm-hmm. exactly we can change that. But we need to, you know, get experts in there who are, you know, educated on the topic and know exactly how to change that. And I, that's a part of abolishing the system. I think people don't really understand that, you know, it's coming up with a new way of making it very easy to fire bad cops. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a lot of other professions, it's very easy to fire people but because but with policing it's it's just super hard even like Mm -hmm. when a police officer is like overtly racist like there's this one case um where my brother lives in manchester where there was this one um there's this one police officer who used in texts um racial slurs repeatedly I'm probably getting a lot of this incorrect, but the police department, they initially fired him, but then months and I think it was like either months or years actually go by Mm -hmm. and um, the police union successfully fought 
to in arbitration to not have the police officer fired wow he was reinstated on the force and almost everybody a lot of government officials in manchester um mayor Mm -hmm. joyce craig um the police department they came out and said we do not support the arbitration board's decision yeah we we needed we really needed to fire this officer Mm -hmm. and this is just a horrible decision by arbitration yeah so what can be done to end de facto segregation such as redlining like and the continuation of segregated school districts neighborhoods and really just yeah correcting a lot of the mistakes that we made back in the 60s early 70s in not um correcting and ending de, de facto uh, segregation yeah i think you know a lot of people see that as like a goal that is not mm-hmm. a realistic goal um because at the end of the day you can't rebuild cities right um because of redlining we were able to you know have communities that were well off and communities that weren't in a good position so i think it's an idea of just you know putting money into the Mm -hmm. communities that were ignored you know i think in terms of phoenix it's giving you know the south side of phoenix more resources and things like that and i think people think more resources is you know gentrification that's not resources because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day gentrification only it helps people who are already in a good position, you know, right. people who already had um, a stable house in a good area. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, Gentrification it's putting is money just into the way. schools. Yeah, it's putting money into schools that are in those districts that mm-hmm. don't really aren't the best schools. Right. Putting money into the roads, putting money into those districts, investing in them um, so that they can be on a you know, you can help the community um, be on a bigger level than um, the places you originally mm-hmm. wanted to be better. I just want to, uh, for discussion purposes, just really quick, uh, just highlight the difference between de facto segregation and de jure segregation. Sure. De jure segregation was basically Jim Crow laws, any type of laws that were put in specifically to segregate. And mm-hmm. de facto segregation is really, I would say, kind of non-existent a lot of the time as far as actually being segregation, but no one did it. That's the definition of de de facto, but a lot of uh, the segregation that we call de facto, it Mm -hmm. was actually done by people. It was actually government policies. Redlining was Mm -hmm. a policy. It was deliberately designed to negatively affect minority communities. Exactly. And not resolving de facto segregation in schools, that definitely was de jure. We we actually had a way to desegregate the school system really by and large with forced busing. That was really until Milliken v. Bradley, a Supreme Court case, really just undercut a lot of the provision, or a lot of the uh, goals of Brown v. Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Milliken v. Bradley, it was really just Warren Berger and uh, the, a conservative Supreme Court just deciding that, oh, we somehow cannot do anything about de facto segregation. Yeah. And that forced busing was 
unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And I think the issue is, is, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to convince people to just move, you know, right. just move into the places that are better. You know, people want to live where their grandparents lived, where the family before them lived. You know, you've right. created a community. You don't want to just leave that, even if leaving is going to be better for you. Um, so you have to meet, you have to meet the community halfway. Right. You have to make that community that is there for them, that they know you got to mm-hmm. make it better. Yeah, and the real solution, instead of uh, just telling uh, people in uh, economically not well-off communities to just move, yes, it could be better for people that move away from these communities, but at the same time, that's not a real solution. That's not how you make these communities better and safer, and it's not how you put in more economic opportunity. The way that you can really make people's lives better is if you invest in these areas invest in these people instead of just telling them to just straight up move exactly and it's investing in what is important to them you know you have to find out from the community because a lot of times people are like oh we're making the community better no you're just gentrifying it Mm -hmm. you know they putting a sprouts in uh, underdeveloped community and putting a fries there or putting a Publix there or Target, that's not making it better. You know, it's... Well, I do argue that up. putting a Publix anywhere makes a community better because Publix is the best. No one can convince me otherwise. <laughs> Pub subs are life. Those subs are good. But yeah. I think a lot of the times people think that, you know, if we just put a whole bunch of restaurants there, yeah, you know, and it's like it's you, not, you're forcing not, out people to move That's not the full there. picture of true economic exactly. opportunity. You need to be able to see the skill sets of the people in these areas mm-hmm. and basically allow them to do what they want to do with their lives. Exactly. And a lot of the times, um, you know, people come in and they build stuff and they put in services that the community who's already living there cannot afford. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, we'll put a whole bunch of new apartments here. Well, the community cannot afford the rent. So then, right. you know, you're not helping them in that way. I remember watching this one documentary called The Prison in Prison in 12 Landscapes, I think. And um, there was this one scene in it where this was in, um, I think, downtown Detroit. Mm. And uh, where Quicken Loans' headquarters is at. And um, one of the things that Quicken Loans has done with their headquarters is that they've also put in like a lot of apartments around their headquarters of course here's the problem that what they did it was gentrification Mm. full stop Mm. and the guy who was like some type of spokesperson or something for uh quicken loans he was walking across the street and like he was like jaywalking right in front of an officer and uh he joked with the officer "Hey, hey i hope you don't stop me for jaywalking and then it's just a really interesting uh, juxtaposition. It's like, well, there are literally people dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, there was this one remark that he made that if you uh, if you just build these really nice buildings and or everything and uh, make first another thing, they had a complete police force, pretty much. Like they had yeah. a lot of security, this huge security force uh, in the area. That was just directly mm. hired by them. Oh, wow. 
And uh, one of the points he made was, if people see that it's safe, they will come. No, it's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, yeah, because a lot of the times the way we go about it is just not correct. And we do mm-hmm. a lot of um, harm more than we do help. And so it's interesting. So what can be done to reverse the policies of the wars on crime and drugs? Well, it's a very big question, Um, but it's interesting. I think a lot of, you know, from what I know of the topic, and I think watching 13th taught me a lot, um, it really is, that was the beginning of criminalizing black skin, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, stop and frisk was just kind of the beginning of truly racial profiling, um and you know when you put that into policy yes stop and frisk is not a policy anymore but you know racial profiling didn't stop just because it's not a Mm -mm. policy anymore doesn't mean it didn't stop right so it's it truly goes hand in hand with police um reform you know and even going past that is because that whole the whole war on drugs criminalizes black and brown skin so you have to decriminalize it right you have to come up with it. Just the whole idea of racial profiling needs to be thrown up the window. You have to stop over policing um, black and brown communities. The fact that, you know, black and brown communities are more policed than white neighborhoods, about like three more percent of the time or something like that. Can't quite remember the exact mm-hmm. statistic. But that's, you know, all these things that people think are small and not as important. Those are the things that you need to start. That's where you start. Mm -hmm. um just decriminalizing black skin you know right and i think a lot of that especially especially with uh remedying the devastating effects of the war on drugs really we need to decriminalize drugs pretty much because exactly drugs we've been all trained to believe that they are a criminal issue Mm. And that was really because of the Nixon administration, the racism of them, the Reagan administration, the racism of them. Mm -hmm. They transformed drugs from being a health issue to being a criminal issue. I am, Mm. I'm not saying at all that drugs are good. They are like hugely dangerous still. Yes. But at the same time, do you deserve to be locked up for them? Exactly. That answer, that answer is no. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we took money out of police departments, you know, if we defund the police and put them more into social programs, the way, I mean, we want to help these people, you know. Um, Drug addiction is a really big issue and Mm -hmm. it destroys families and it destroys lives. But, you know, putting someone in a cell for that isn't going to help them. That's not rehabilitation at all. And you also got to look at, you know, the communities and what's happening in these areas and why, are people, you know, dealing drugs? Like, what is what is the reason for it? Because no one wakes up one morning and is like, you know, I really want to deal drugs. There is a motivation and that's right. money. It's just because, because people are poor. Right. <laughs> it's just this entire system where you completely defund neighborhoods and communities to the point that their only option for even having a chance at raising their economic status mm-hmm. is through crime when yeah. when you have a system that lends itself to that, that's a failed system. Exactly, exactly. 
So, I mean, it's more a fight on poverty, you know, than it is. We did used to have a war on poverty with the Lyndon Johnson administration. We were on the right track. But because of us completely bungling Vietnam and him not running for re-election, that really stopped a lot of the progress that we were making. And, you know, fighting poverty is not... um, Criminalizing homelessness is not a solution to that. And I think a lot of people think it is, you know, if, oh, well, if homeless people on the street, let's just arrest them and then they go somewhere else. And, oh, we won't have to see homelessness. So therefore it's solved. That's that's Mm -hmm. not justice. It's not justice. That's not how you improve people's lives. It's not how you get them out of homelessness. Exactly. I think punishing people for the situations that they find them in Mm-hmm. themselves and as a result of the system that the government created right you know that's not justice you have to help these people out of these situations and right. that's really hard so why don't you just you know take it one step further and destroy the systems that get people there in the first place right and, and then you lot- won't have to worry about trying to help these people out of the system that you've created right and a, a lot of the i want to kind of talk more about uh, homelessness for a second we're going to have an entire episode about that as well but Mm. really with homelessness it's just this entire effort specifically by a lot of the republican party to portray homelessness as a failure of the person instead of the failure of the system that the person was like inherently lazy and if you give money to homeless people that they'll just end up going to a bar and uh Mm -hmm. drinking beer it's so incredibly hard for people to get mm-hmm. out of a situation where they're experiencing homelessness. You know, it, people are just like, well, just get a job. You know, you need an address <laughs> That's... to get a job. Right. To apply for a job, you need an address. These people don't have homes. Right. So how are they supposed to get a job? And another thing is that with with homelessness, it's, yes, there are people that uh, will just that do like beg for money and then just go to a bar right after. Yes, those people Mm -hmm. exist, but those people, they also are deserving of help. Exactly. Exactly. Like not just monetary help, like actual like treatment or for Mm -hmm. what they're dealing with. I think once you, you know, what we love to do with people who are experiencing homelessness is we love to strip them of their humanity. And I think it's, you know, it's, become this thing of just like don't because they found themselves in a less desirable situation or not deserving of humanity you know it's like parents teaching their kids well don't talk to homeless people you know what is that what are you teaching your kids you know what is that saying about that person experiencing the situation um and i think they'll all anyone experiencing homelessness is deserving of humanity because they're humans at the end of the day And I loved the point that you made um, of how people see that as the failure of the person. It's not. It's the failure of the system. Right. And I just want to remind everyone once again that homelessness could be ended with $20 billion. That sounds like a lot of money, but that's just what Jeff Bezos makes in a few months. Exactly. Don't even get me started on billionaires. That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that's definitely going to be another episode. Maybe another ten. We're 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 gonna be talking about billionaires a lot in this podcast. Yeah, but I think there's so many things like going back to the war on drugs, there's so many things that happened and um 
you know, what was the motivation? I just think if you look at like, you know, big cities that are like really diverse mm-hmm. and have large African-American population, you know, if you look at New, New York City, if you look at Chicago, like what's happening in those cities is it's wow, it's a lot. And, you know, right. a lot of people are like, well, I love this argument that people came up with. It's like, well, you look at all the gang violence happening um, in, uh, you know, in Chicago and it's like well do black lives matter then when you're like fighting when like black people are killing other black people and it's like of course but that's a whole nother fight for yeah, another day you that know? Um, exactly like the reason why a lot of the inners it's just going back to a lack of economic opportunity exactly and it's also like why are you getting all these statistics why are you finding all these big numbers well because those neighborhoods are black neighborhoods and they're over policed so, of course, they're going to have a higher rate of crime. It's just the way it is because there's more data, because mm-hmm. there's more people spending time in those neighborhoods. You know, if police spend just, you know, half the amount of time as they do in black neighborhoods and, like, you know, suburban areas, I'm sure they'll find a higher rate of crime. Yeah. But they're, they're not paying attention. They're not there. So, of course, the crime rates are low in places where the police are not. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, when a lot of uh, conservatives use the black-on-black crime argument, you know, there's also white-on-white crime, right? Exactly. It's just crime. Yeah, (laughs) it's crime. It's crime. (laughs) That's what it is. You know, um, we have to stop pretending that... And we we need to stop calling it, like, black-on-black crime and white-on-white crime. We have to stop acting like these crimes are racially motivated. Right, crime is crime. an economic issue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. It's poverty. Um, these uh, black people aren't killing other black people because they're black. They're killing other black people because, you know, there's a money thing there. It's um, a drug dealing thing. It's a, a theft thing. It's a gang violence, you know. Um, and these are all results of mm-hmm. um, economic issues. Exactly. Really interesting that this system, it's just in so much need of so many changes across the board Mm -hmm. because racism, systemic racism is just so much ingrained in everything. Yeah, it runs so, so deep, which is why you can't reform that. You can't reform something that runs so incredibly deep. And I think that's why people are saying we're, we're way past the point of reform. And we were past the point of reform long ago. We were past we, the we didn't point just of hit reform. It with George Floyd, right. We know? were past the point of reform when Reconstruction ended. Exactly. We were. Like, we've been so, past we reform so for a hundred years. That, that it's not. Reform isn't justice anymore. That's how far past reform we are. You know? So, I mean, the only way of somehow giving these people justice is abolishment and actually making the changes that are needed to Mm. save people's lives exactly and i think if we just look at not only and i think if you look at it from like a selfish motivation i i was just talking to my mom and i was like you know how much trouble local governments and local officials would save themselves if they just gave these people justice. Like, if you think of after the Breonna Taylor verdict, how, you know, riots sparked up um, and they got knew really that it was going to happen. And it's like, 
that could have all been avoided with one jury decision. Right. You know, it's just like, it's almost like it's not even worth it to them. They would rather deal with the destruction and the aftermath and all of this. It's because of the destruction yeah. helps their narrative. It's mm. that's what they think. Mm. It's yeah, it just it's true. It runs so deep. It runs mm-hmm. so incredibly deep, which is why we can't just reform it. We can't just put in new policies. It's not enough. You cannot keep what's you already have, there because it's not right. You have anyone. to actually get rid of policies. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I think that's a really good place to end our episode. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. That's our show. Thank you so much to our guest, Maddie. Next week, we will talk about the importance of settling for Joe Biden and what exactly is at stake if Donald Trump wins a second term. I will be talking to former Bernie Sanders supporter Aaliyah Cruz and former Trump supporter Kariah Scott about their perspectives on Joe Biden. Our editor and producer is Grace Herzog. The intro and outro song was composed by Joakim Karud. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.